Well, uh, we're in a series called After Easter, and uh, we're talking about the uh, appearances that Jesus made to his early followers after the resurrection. So after Jesus rose from the dead, he didn't just go immediately back to heaven. He actually spent uh, some time uh, here on on earth uh, meeting with various disciples. We're going to look at at those encounters. And uh, today we're going to look, like I said, at Thomas, who is somebody who is deeply skeptical, somebody who is doubting. Uh, uh, the resurrection. And so today we're going to talk about doubt. Now one of my favorite films uh, is a screenplay turned movie called Doubt. And it's set in 1964 in the Bronx and uh, starring uh, the late uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And, and so he's, this, uh, he's a priest who goes into a new parish and he's this uh, progressive, warm, gracious guy. And of course, everybody uh, in the parish immediately loves him. And uh, his antagonist in the movie is a woman called Sister Aloysius, and she's played by Meryl Streep. And of course, she hates uh, uh, Father Flynn, and and she's trying to get rid of him. She's this kind of cold and icy woman, and she sees herself as a guardian of the faith and tradition. And in the movie, as as the plot thickens, she finally gets what she wants. She gets rid of Father Flynn but not before uh, breaking some of her own moral codes, not before she goes against uh, all of her traditions in order to get rid of them. And then at the very end of the movie, uh, uh, Sister Aloysius is sitting on a bench, and she's next to a young uh, nun named uh, Sister Jane, played by Amy Adams, and she finally unravels, uh, Sister Aloysius finally unravels, and she looks over at Sister Jane, and this is what she says. She says, oh, Sister Jane, I have doubts. I have such doubts. Now, sooner or later, this is all of us, I think. And there's a lot of reasons why we doubt. You know, maybe like Sister Aloysius, you've broken one of your own moral codes. Maybe you've had a moral collapse. And so when the, the aftermath of that, your life is falling apart, and you're wondering, do I believe any of this? Is any of this really worth it? Or maybe it's because we've been disappointed. You know, maybe in your life, uh, things are not going the way you expected them to. Uh, Maybe God is not showing up for you the way you wanted him to. And so uh, you're disappointed and you're filled with doubt and you're, you're wondering if God even loves you, if he's even real. Or maybe you've been there, maybe you've been in a place where you've discovered something in the Bible that seems to contradict what you know to be true. You know, maybe you're bothered by the miracles in the Bible, or maybe you're bothered by some of the moral codes in the Bible. Maybe you're bothered by some of the seeming contradictions in the Bible, and so you're filled with doubt. There's a lot of reasons why you might be skeptical this morning. And so what we're going to do is we're going to ask the question, what does the Bible say about doubt? And I love what the Bible says about doubt. Uh, The Bible has a very nuanced and balanced view of skepticism. Because on the one hand, there are many religious people that tend to be very uncomfortable with doubt. They're terrified by it. They They think of it as a terrible, horrible thing. And of course, you don't feel safe around some of these religious people expressing your doubt. But then on the other hand, there are uh, secular people that almost look at doubt as the hallmark of intellectual integrity, as you know, almost like pr- living in perennial doubt and constant skepticism is the only way to be intellectually honest. Now, the Bible doesn't go to, any, to either one of these two extremes. The Bible has a balanced view of doubt. Because what the Bible says is doubt can be something through which we can make progress. Right? It's not horrible. It's not amazing. 
It's something through which, if we, tr- if we respond to it well, it could lead us to higher levels of faith. And so we're going to look at that this morning, and I want to look at it by looking at Doubting Thomas. And of course, this is a very famous story, um, and it's, what's interesting is uh, Thomas's nickname in the story is The Twin. That's what everybody called him. But now, you know, 2,000 years later, what do we all call him? He got a new nickname, Doubting Thomas. But I lo- what I love about the story is Thomas experiences doubt, he experiences skepticism, but then he works through it. And finally, he ends up through his doubt, through his questioning, he ends up making progress. And he moves to a higher level of faith. We're going to ask a question, how did he do it? We're going to move with Thomas through his doubt and see if we might end up where he ended up. And so I want us to see three things. Uh, number one, we're going to look at the doubt of Thomas, what we can learn from his doubt. And then second of all, we'll look at the response of Jesus, how Jesus responded to Thomas's doubt. And then finally, we're going to look at the victory of belief, how Thomas ended up uh, moving forward in his faith. And so the doubt of Thomas, the response of Jesus, and the victory of belief. We're going to look at all of them here in uh, John chapter 20. And so let's begin by looking at the doubt of Thomas. What do we learn from Thomas's doubt? In verse 24, now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. We'll stop there. And so here's the setting. Uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. Uh, he has appeared to Mary, you know, Mary Magdalene, right at the tomb, and Thomas wasn't there for that. And then uh, Jesus goes to the upper room, and he appears to the other 11 disciples, and Thomas wasn't there for that either. And you're asking, where was Thomas during all this time? Well, maybe Thomas was on a Starbucks run or something. I don't know. Uh, but he wasn't there, and so he missed all of it. And the disciples go to Thomas, and they're like, guess what, Thomas? Jesus is alive. You know, we saw him. He's risen from the dead. And of course, Thomas is filled with skepticism. And he says, look, unless I see the nail prints in his, his hands and I stick my, my hand in his side, I will never believe. And so he's filled with doubt. He's filled with skepticism. And I, th- see here, I think first we learn here, uh, uh, we get here a really good picture of what doubt looks like. I mean, what is doubt? Well, Thomas shows us here. Um, notice that, that Thomas, he's, he's not really, he's lost his confidence. This is what doubt is. You, you were confident before, but something's happened and now you've lost it. And it's not really, it's not, it's to be of two minds, you know, to believe something, you're of one mind accepting it. But to disbelieve, to be an unbeliever, you're of one mind rejecting something. But doubt is something different. You're of two minds. In fact, the Greek word for doubt is the word uh, dipsikos, which literally means to be, to have two psyches, to have double vision, to be of two minds. So get the picture, it's almost like spiritual vertigo to doubt. You know, uh, if you've ever read scripture here, up here on the stage before, and you're on your way down the stage, I've seen it before, some of you almost trip. And you're in sort of that middle place, and uh, you haven't fallen yet, thank God, but you're not, you don't have your balance. You're kind of in vertigo, and this is doubt. And it's kind of a vulnerable place. If you've ever been up there and you almost fall, have almost fallen, that's vulnerable, it's embarrassing, And this is where Thomas is. He's questioning. He's got one foot in this boat and one foot in this boat, and he's vulnerable, and he's disoriented. This is the picture of doubt that we have from Thomas. I want you to notice, though, that Thomas shows us the prevalence of doubt. 
uh, what Thomas shows us is that, is that anybody could doubt. I mean, if Thomas doubts, this means that, that really anybody is susceptible to skepticism and, and, and unbelief. Because who is Thomas? Uh, Thomas is not somebody of weak faith. Thomas is not some immature uh, uh, unbeliever. Thomas is what? Thomas is an apostle. Uh, Thomas is a man of great character. You know, it's kind of a bummer that he becomes known as Doubting Thomas. Because he really had, he displays a lot of character in the Bible. There's one place where uh, Tom, you know, uh, you know, Thomas is sitting there and Jesus is waxing eloquent about, I'm going away, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and you know the way, and you know how to get there. And Thomas interrupts Jesus and says, Jesus, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't know where you're going, and we don't know the way. We could have called him Honest Thomas. There's another place where Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem, and I'm going to die, and they're going to kill me there. And all the disciples are saying, no, 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 don't do that. And Thomas says, I'm willing to go to Jerusalem, and I'm willing to die with you. We could have called him Brave Thomas. But notice here, this man who's an apostle, this man who's got great character, also is a man who doubts. Anybody can doubt. It's not just weak and mature people. It's mature apostles who find themselves struggling with doubt. And notice how strong his, his, his skepticism is. He says, unless I see the prince, I will never believe. That coming from an apostle. And it's true, whenever you look uh, through the Bible, you see that, you know, you always see people in the Bible who are very strong, who struggle with doubt. Old Testament, there's a psalm, Psalm 73. It's very skeptical, written by Asaph. And who is Asaph? Well, he's a worship leader in Israel. He's a leader in the church, and he's also writing Psalm 73. He's an author of scripture. I don't know about you, but that's not one of my goals, to author of scripture. You need to have realistic goals, but here's an author of scripture struggling with doubt. In another man, uh, John the Baptist, Jesus calls him the greatest man who ever lived. At one point, he's sitting in prison, and he's, he doesn't believe Jesus is the Messiah anymore, and so he sends his disciples to ask Jesus, are you really the Messiah? Are you sure? John the Baptist struggled with doubt. And then one of my favorite places at the end of the book of Matthew, uh, Jesus, it's right before he's ascended unto heaven, all of his disciples are gathering, uh, gathered around him, and here's the picture. It says that they worshiped him, but some doubted. And I thought, what an honest, beautiful picture of the church, worshiping and doubting. A wanting to believe, but also skeptical. And so doubt is not simply for, for weak people. In fact, if you're doubting and skeptical, you're in the very best of company. But Thomas also shows us the benefit of doubt. You know, doubt is not all bad, and Thomas shows us that, because notice here, uh, Thomas, the, uh, he's doubting, but through his doubt, he ends up uh, making one of the greatest confessions of faith in the New Testament. So this is a climax of John. And John, at the very beginning, beginning of his book, says, I'm writing this book so that you would believe in Jesus. I'm writing this book so that you might put your faith in Jesus, so that you would believe. And at the very end of the book, you finally see somebody making a statement of faith. It's Thomas. On the lips of Thomas, you hear him saying, my Lord and what? My God. The greatest, clearest, most profound statement of Jesus' divinity found on the lips of doubting Thomas. Tim Keller puts it this way, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe as they do 
uh, as they do, will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a, of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she failed over the years to listen patiently to her doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. So Keller says, look, doubt is almost like, it's almost like an antibody. It's, it's something that could actually lead to progress, can lead you to stronger faith. Uh, Francis Bacon, who's an educator, he's one of the early modern scientists, uh, he, he made a state, statement that I think has parallels to Christian faith. He's talking about science and experimenting, but he says this, if you begin with certainties, you will end in doubts. But if you will begin with doubts, you will end in certainty. And so if you're always, you know, uh, swallowing everything, hook, line, and thinker, thinker? Sinker. <laughs> hook, line, is Freudian slip. Hook, line, and sinker, if you're not testing what you believe, if you're not examining what you believe, if you're not doubting even what you believe, you're not going to move to a higher level of faith. And so there are benefits to doubt. But finally, I want you to see that through Thomas, we see there's a danger to doubt. There's a danger to doubt. Because notice Thomas, is, he's teetering, right? He's on the edge here. And you all know it. You all have seen it. There, there are people that, you know, they started doubting. They started questioning. They, they were skeptical, and they, they, they didn't express it. It's all in here. And they stopped showing up, and pretty soon they haven't been to church in a long time. And, and after that, they've stopped praying, and they've fallen off the edge. You see, doubt can lead you either way. Doubt can lead you to stronger faith, but it could also push you off the edge. It's a dangerous situation to be, be in. And Thomas here, notice, uh, he says, I will never believe. He's deeply skeptical. And then in verse 26, it says, eight days later, eight days later. What this means is that Thomas has been sitting in doubt for eight days. He's been sitting in, I'll never believe land for eight days. He's been teetering and, and disoriented for eight days. And, and he's in a dangerous situation here. And so uh, how does Jesus respond? This is the second point. How does Jesus respond to Thomas's doubt? We need to know this. Because if we're skeptical this morning and, and you know, you know, if we're doubting this morning, if we're disoriented, we need to know what to do about it. And we learn what to do about, about it by watching how Jesus responds to Thomas here. What does Jesus do with Thomas's doubt? Well, let's read and see what Jesus does. In verse 26, eight days later, <clears throat> his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put, your, put out your hand and place it in my side and do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have seen and yet have not believed. And so Jesus comes into the picture and he's going to begin to respond to Thomas's doubt. I want us to notice three things that Jesus does here to respond to Thomas that are super helpful when you're dealing with doubt, okay? Uh, first of all, notice what Jesus does. He, number one, I want you to see that he loves Thomas in his doubt. I want you to see that he welcomes Thomas in his doubt. So notice uh, here Thomas, he's sitting with his disciples, and Jesus arrives, and he comes in the door, and what does he say to, to Thomas? Well, notice what he doesn't say to Thomas. He doesn't say, uh, how dare you, Thomas? How dare you not believe me? I've, you've walked with me for three years. You don't believe me? Come on, Thomas. How dare you? He doesn't shame his skepticism. 
nor does he come and, and, and judge him. He doesn't say, look, Thomas, all the other disciples believed. Everybody else believes. Why can't you believe? What's wrong with you, Thomas? Come on, what's going on? He doesn't judge him. And notice he doesn't embarrass him. He doesn't say, look, Thomas, you're an apostle. Come on, there are people that are following you. You know, if you don't be careful, you're going to doubt, and they're going to write it down in a story, and people for 2,000 years are going to call you Doubting Thomas. That happened, by the way. (laughs) Jesus doesn't say any of that. What does Jesus say when he walks in the door? He walks into the doubter and says, peace. He comes to Thomas. He doesn't just leave him out there and say, look, you're doubting, fine. You go and you just do whatever you want. No, he comes to Thomas and he reaches out to him. He loves him and he says, peace, Thomas. Thomas, I want to welcome you in all of your skepticism and all of your doubt. And so Jesus gives him love. Jesus welcomes him even in his doubt. And it's important for us to see this because a lot of times we're afraid of it, of doubt. You know, somebody that we love, or maybe we even ourselves, we don't, it's almost like, no, 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 stop that. Don't even think about that. Um, the other night, my son, uh, Samuel, I, um, I put my kids to bed, and, and I was talking to them about, I think we had just prayed or something, and uh, Samuel looked at me and he said, Dad, how do I know that God even exists? How do I know that God is even real? And I remember thinking like, no, don't say that, Samuel. What if you say, what, what if that comes out in Sunday school, pastor's kid? No, 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 you can't, don't, don't even think that, don't even say that. And then I went out to my wife, and I was telling her what Samuel had said, and she said, Brent, you gotta relax. You can't be so afraid. You gotta embrace him, you gotta, you've gotta welcome him, you've gotta love him, even through any sort of skepticism. Well, I know he's only eight, <laughs> It's going to get worse, probably, you're saying, when you have teenagers. Tim Keller, who's one of my um, heroes, if you go to his website on his church, and you look on, in big, bold letters, it says, skeptics welcome. And I love that. And I hope that we as a church could be like that. I hope that we could be a place where you're not embarrassed or ashamed to voice your doubt where you can come and you can belong even though you're struggling to believe, where you can come with questions and you can come with doubts and we're gonna welcome you with open arms. Skeptics, welcome. And this is exactly what Jesus does here to Thomas. He says, peace, I'm here. I'm going after you. And just like I went after the, the, the lost sheep and just like I go after sinners and prostitutes and, and anybody else out there, I love skeptics. And I wanna embrace them. Jesus loves Thomas, but notice what else Jesus does. Jesus gives Thomas evidence. He comes with love. He also comes with evidence. Notice uh, he gives Thomas exactly what Thomas asked for. He said to Thomas in verse 27, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. That's exactly what Thomas asked to do. This is the evidence he was looking for. And so Jesus comes and he invites Thomas to examine the evidence. You know, Christianity is not a religion where you check your brain at the door. It's not like you are, you're skeptical and you're rational over here, or you can be a person of faith. Faith and reason go together, and Jesus invites us to examine evidence. He invites us to think. There's an old, t- there's a, um, a, 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 a medieval monk, uh, his name was Thomas Aquinas, 
and he talked about faith-seeking understanding. In other words, he's saying faith and reason go together. You believe and you reason and you think. And so if you're struggling with doubt, I want to encourage you, look, you're welcome to come, but I also want to encourage you to examine evidence and reason and think. You know, maybe there's, a, maybe there's some books that you need to read. And if you want a recommendation, I would love to recommend some stuff to you. Uh, maybe you need to seek out people. You know, there's somebody who comes into my office like once a month with a question I could never answer. You know, he come, the, the other week he was in my office asking me questions about hell. And uh, I sent him to Lucas. <laughs> um, seek people out. And maybe those people won't be able to answer your question, you know, as well as you'd like, but you could reason together and you could struggle together. There's books, there's people, and just reason and think. Spend some time, you know, examining evidence and working it through. If your Christian faith is not shot through with all kinds of reasoning and thinking, it will never last through all the ups and downs of life in this world. A reasoned faith, an examined faith, is a strong faith. And Jesus invites Thomas to examine his hands and his feet. So notice uh, what else uh, Jesus brings to Thomas. He brings him love, he brings him evidence, but I also want you to see that he brings Thomas a challenge. Look, he says, uh, examine my hands and feet and look at all the evidence, Thomas. But then finally he says to him, Thomas, now that I've shown you my hands and my feet, he says, I want you to don't disbelieve and believe. He says, Thomas, don't doubt. Believe, man. He gives Thomas a challenge. In other words, you, you can sit in, in, in skepticism for as long as you want. You know, you could reason back and forth for days and for weeks and for months and for years. But sooner or later, faith involves a decision. In other words, if you're waiting for absolute, complete certainty, you will wait forever. And what Jesus says is after you've looked at the evidence and after you've, I've, I've welcomed you in and you can be here and you can think, but he says sooner or later, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask you to believe. I'm gonna ask you to step off the ledge. I was reading a book by um, a skeptic who, uh, he lost his faith from science. I talked about him last week. And then he came back. And he says, I was a scientist, so I wanted to put God under a microscope. And I wanted to get conclusive scientific proof that he's there. And he says, yeah, I got evidence, but nothing really conclusively. He says, then I just realized that this is what faith is for. And, and eventually he said this. He said, I've learned that the need for certainty is an addiction that we can kick. That it's possible to have faith and even to follow Christ without needing to defend historical Christianity like a doctoral thesis. We can approach beliefs not as gems to be mined from the earth and protected with clenched fists, but as butterflies that land on an open hand, as gifts to enjoy but not possess. In other words, think and reason and, there's e and, and look at the evidence, but sooner or later, Jesus is going to ask you to, to believe, to step off the ledge, to fling yourself over the gap. 
Isn't this true of almost anything else in life? When I was younger and I was dating Anita, um, I was one of those guys who was, I was commitment phobic. I wanted, I wanted to uh, get proof that she was the one. I wanted to almost put our relationship under a microscope and say, yes, I know it. This is conclusive proof. Now, I, now we'll get married. But I kept on reasoning and back and forth and evidence and this and that and talking to that person and, and, and months went on and years went on and finally Anita was like, make a decision, dude. Sometimes you just have to step off and trust. Even when I came out here to Arkansas, like I didn't know this was the right thing. It's not like I could put this decision under a microscope. And so, oh yeah, I know this is it. No, it, I, I looked at all the reasons and yes, it made sense and it's a good career move and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, I had to decide, I had to step off the ledge. And this is what it's like to be a Christian. Faith is confidence, faith is trust, faith is not just reason and proof. Uh, the author of Severe Mercy puts it this way, I saw a gap between the possible and the proved. He was, he was examining his faith and he wanted proof that Christianity was true and he says, how was I to cross it? If I was to stake my whole life on the risen Christ, I wanted proof, I wanted certainty, I wanted letters of fire across the sky. But then I realized, oh my God, there was a gap behind me. There's a gap in front of me, there's a gap behind me. Yes, there is a leap of faith to accept Jesus Christ because I couldn't prove that Jesus was God, but by God, I had no proof that he wasn't. How could I not reject Jesus without great faith? Once I realized that, I flung myself over the gap. And Jesus comes to Thomas he says, oh, I love you. Oh, you can stay here as long as you want. I'm gonna welcome you and I'm gonna go to you and I'm gonna even give you evidence. I'm gonna give you reasons. I'm gonna ask you to think. But at the end of the day, Thomas, this is not, you know, something under a microscope. Faith involves, it's relational. It involves trust and confidence. And sooner or later, you've got to decide to believe. Believe, he says to Thomas. And do not doubt so this is how Jesus works with Thomas. This is how he's working him through this doubt. And notice at the very end, Thomas finally goes over the edge. He finally reaches a place where he overcomes the doubt. And he believes, and like I said, he makes this statement, my Lord and my God, the statement of belief, the greatest almost in all the, the New Testament. And I want to ask the question, how did Thomas get this victory? What pushed Thomas over the edge? What I want you to notice here is, is when Jesus comes and he says, Thomas, here's exactly what you wanted. You can touch my hands and you could put your hand in my side. Do you notice that Thomas believes, but do you notice what Thomas never does? He never touched Jesus. Jesus gave him exactly what he wanted and Thomas believes, but he does it without ever doing what he said he needed to do in order to believe. I will never believe unless I touch you. He believes he never touched Jesus. And what does that show us? I mean, evidence is vital. It's, it's certainly important, but the key to faith is seeing Jesus. Seeing him. It's almost like Thomas, Jesus enters the room and, and Thomas sees Jesus and he looks at his scars and seeing Jesus is all he needed. 
He said, my Lord and my God, I believe. Because maybe Thomas, he was thinking, you know, I just, I want, I need to see the scars. I need to see the scars. I need to touch the scars. But then he started asking, well, why, why does he have scars? Why does Jesus even have scars? And then he starts to think, well, it's because he died. Why did he die? Well, wait a minute. If, if Jesus is God, if he's the creator, if he's the Lord, and he's got scars, what does this mean? It means that the God of Christianity is unlike any other God we've ever seen. He's the only God with scars. Jesus is the only God, or God is the only God, the God of Jesus is the only suffering God. And Thomas says he's done it. He's done that for me. I've never seen love like this before. I've never met a God like this before. And he looks at Jesus and he says, my Lord and my God. Listen, there, there is evidence for you to look at. But do not stop until you've gone to the cross. Because it's in the cross and seeing those nail-scarred hands that we see what kind of God Jesus is. And you can believe this God. You can step off the ledge for this God. You can trust this God. You can put your confidence in this God. John Stott, in one of his books, he, he puts it this way. He says, I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross. In the real world of pain, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? And when Thomas looked at Jesus, he saw a God who was familiar with suffering. And he saw a God who knew his pain. And he saw a God who, who loves us in the cross. And he says, I believe that God. And he works his way through. And so here we see Thomas's doubt. We see the way Jesus deals with him. But then he fi- we finally learn that, that we can get to the other side. That we could work our way through the doubt. And it all comes by looking at Jesus. So let's, let's come before him now and let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you that you were a God who... Uh, came into the, the world historically, God. You left marks in the history books, God. There, there is evidence that you rose again from the dead. But God, this morning, we want to thank you that you are a God who suffered for us. Lord, that you are a God who, who's got scars. Lord, you are the suffering God. And Father, we pray that as we gaze at the cross, this thing that makes makes Christianity so unique. God, that you would increase our faith, that you'd give those of us here who just are skeptical and indecisive and filled with doubts, Lord, that that as we look at the cross, we would see you in all of your love and all your beauty and that you would lead us to a place of greater faith. And we ask that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.